Solving Sacramento. A lot of hope is being pinned on the Aggie Square development project happening near the Oak Park, Elmhurst, and Tahoe Park neighborhoods of Sacramento. There are plenty of concerns, too. Gentrification, housing, and rent prices. Who gets to work there? Well, to give us a better idea about what's happening with this development, Solving Sacramento hosted a Suds and Solutions event back on January 31st of this year. And if you couldn't attend, today, you're in luck. From Solving Sacramento, I'm Nick Bruner, and this is a special episode of Housing in the Capital. Suds and Solutions. Solving Sacramento throws events like this every couple of months, and we'd love to see you out at the next one. Admission is free, there's catering, and, as the name implies, there are suds. SolvingSacramento.org will have the event announcements. Check out that website. You can also find out more by following California Groundbreakers at Sacramento365.com. And with that, we now take you to the Brick House Gallery and Art Complex in Oak Park and Robert Hansen, who moderated the event. Hello, everyone. Thank you for gathering here tonight and joining us for this uh, important discussion. Um, I'm Robert Hansen, staff writer for the Sacramento Observer. And as Vanessa said, I'm your moderator for tonight. Tonight's discussion is a two-part discussion focused on Aggie Square displacement and something called the Community Benefits Benefits Partnership Agreement, or CBA. Uh, Part one, explaining the Community Benefits Agreement, includes five speakers who will now introduce themselves. Good evening. My name is Sumiko Hong, and I'm the Community Engagement Manager for UC Davis Aggie Square. Hello, all. My name is Tamika LaCluse. I am the Executive Director of Sacramento Community Land Trust and the Vice President of Sacramento Investment Without Displacement. Hello, I'm Michael Blair, and I am on the board of a couple different neighborhood associations here in the area, and uh, I'll just call myself Community Guy. Good evening. My name is Travis Sheridan. Uh, I work for Wexford Science and Technology. We're the real estate developer partnering with the university and the city on the CBA, uh, CBPA, and also building out Aggie Square, and I serve as our uh, company's chief community officer. Hi, I'm Leslie Fritchie. I work for the city in the Office of Innovation Economic Development. That sounds so impressive, right? Um, We just call it economic development, and I'm the liaison between the city, uh, the community, and uh, the developments at Aggie Square. So I really want to thank you all for coming out tonight on such a rainy night. It definitely shows the interest in Aggie Square, and uh, I thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll make it a productive and informative night. So thank you. Okay, we'll get right to it. <clears throat> this question is for Leslie, Samiko, and Travis. What roles do you and your organizations play in the development of Aggie Square? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Robert. I'll go first and talk a little bit about the origins of the project. Um, really, the beginnings of Aggie Square started with uh, our new chancellor, uh, Chancellor Gary May, who came on board to UC Davis in 2017. Uh, Chancellor May came from Georgia Tech, where there was a very similar innovation district that had been built that brought together university researchers and private industry in adjacent research spaces. And he uh, knew that it was an important economic driver for Atlanta and created an accelerated pace where university discovery could turn into products and services that companies were spinning out that solved 
uh, big grand challenges for humans. So when he arrived at uh, UC Davis, one of the first things he set as a priority for his chancellorship was the creation of a similar innovation district. Um, after a lengthy site selection process in which UC Davis considered numerous sites in the Sacramento region, uh, we arrived at the decision to go ahead and build Aggie Square on the campus of UC Davis Health in Sacramento. Uh, and then we began a partner solicitation and a long selection process for a developer who would be our partner. Uh, Wexford came out on top uh, as uh, the number one and best partner. And then from there, I'll turn it over to Travis. So Wexford Science and Technology, we are a real estate development company, uh, but we only do innovation districts or what we call knowledge communities. And we, all, we only do them with uh, universities and academic research centers. Uh, so it's, the, it's a very narrow lane, but that's what we do. And we have 17 of these Aggie Square type things, all with different names, all across the country. Uh, the thing that I was most excited, so I live in St. Louis, Missouri, but I'm a, I'm a Fresno, I can tell this group actually a Madera kid by, uh, by, by upbringing, um, and I was really excited. This is our first project in California, and I was so, so pleased that our first project in California was in the Central Valley, because I think when a lot of people think about uh, innovation happening in California, they might think about the Bay Area, or they might think about uh, LA and San Diego area. But again, as a Central Valley kid, I, I've seen the innovation that happens here. I've seen the creative people that live here. Uh, so for, our, for my company and the company I work for to be able to come and have our first, first footprint in California and in, in Sacramento meant a lot to me. My role at, at Wexford as the chief community officer is, is Pretty, pretty straightforward. I'm very excited about doing community engagement for a company like Wexford. Um, and then the pandemic happened. Uh, and just two weeks after joining, though, we came to Sacramento to celebrate the kickoff of Aggie Square. And we'll go into a little bit more detail on the community benefit partnership agreement. But I think that uh, with folks that are like, uh, like Tamika and Michael and others that are on this panel and that are, and that are in this room, uh, the ability to navigate and negotiate a community benefit package that for our company's history, this is the most comprehensive one we've ever done. And doing that in the midst of a global pandemic where we don't have the ability to meet face-to-face -face in breweries and walk neighborhoods and go to community meetings, I, it was a big challenge for me, but the challenge was made easier because of the types of community partners that exist in Sacramento and the investment without displacement, the investment that people make in their communities. Uh, so my job within Wexford is to make sure that as we are building these innovation districts, we're doing it where the outcome ultimately is belonging. Uh, that we are not harmfully uh, gentrifying and displacing the community, that people have the opportunity for upward mobility um, so that they can get jobs during the construction phase and also during the permanent jobs that exist. Uh, if we're not doing that and we're not doing it well, then we're failing. And I'm the first person in my company to have this job, so I get to make up a lot of rules. Uh, nobody challenges me oftentimes uh, because I'm the only person in the company that knows how to do this, uh, thankfully. Uh, but I, my job is easier and easier with, because of many of the people that are sitting on this panel, even though they challenge, because of the challenges as well. We would not have had, and we'll, again, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, we would not have had such a comprehensive solution if it wasn't for the negotiations and conversations with the community and a great city partner like Leslie. Okay, well, I think that's my time. So um, I, <laughs> I, 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 as I said, I work for the city, and our role, um, I will say, we are, there was magic happening between UC Davis and Wexford, right? You heard, there 
there was an RFP, they selected Wexford as the developer, and, uh, but it was a little bit in a vacuum, that process, right? It was the development of the UC Davis campus, you know, the development of this public-private partnership, um, and, but then all of a sudden, um, what do you know? It became a little bit more expensive uh, to develop this than uh, originally envisioned. So uh, there was, they came to the city to say, you know, the city, can you, can you help us out a little bit with a little bit of infrastructure dollars? So um, our role at the city is to provide um, infrastructure dollars for the build out of Aggie Square. Uh, we formed a, a financing district, but I think more importantly than just that funding partner, what it allowed us to do is to be, uh, have a seat at the table to talk about how this can be not only transformative for the city and the region in terms of advances in biomedical research and all of those things, but how it can really benefit uh, the community. So my role uh, in this project is to ensure that the Community Benefit Partnership Agreement works that it makes a difference for the community, and Aggie Square gets built out and the city supports it in every way possible, but primarily it's to make sure that the benefits really extend into the community, and it's not just a project that has a moat around it, but it is tentacles into the community in an inclusive economic development way, and I'm very committed to doing that. So that's my role um, as part of uh, the city in this project. And I'll loop back and just say, explain what my role is, because we did a good job of talking the chronology of where did the project come from and what are each of the partners' roles. Um, my role as the community engagement manager, like Travis, I am the first person to hold my job. Uh, I report into the unit of government and community relations in the office of the chancellor. So this was a very high priority for the chancellor and the office of government and community relations to make sure that we live up to the community benefits partnership agreement in the best way possible. So I have a two-part job, and one part is to help coordinate all the activity under the CBPA and that we do all the things that we said we would do and work together with our partners to deliver those things on time. Um, and my, the second part of my job is to show up and listen more. Um, so you, uh, many of you will see me uh, at community meetings, at community events. Um, I'm always happy to take uh, individual coffee meetings or to show up at your community organization and talk about what Aggie Square intends to be and how we can partner with community organizations to really build up community sense of belonging and community benefit in the project. So I get to spend a lot of time out in the community going to events and talking to people about the project. So um, thanks. For Michael and Tamika, when you both first heard that Aggie Square development was greenlit, what thoughts did you have regarding its impact on Oak Park and or what actions did you take? Um, so when I first heard about the Aggie Square project, I was the president of the Oak Park Neighborhood Association. And um, we were meeting with a couple different folks down at the Valley Vision office to say, you know, what is that? Exactly what is this? Um, and, you know, we heard oh, it's going to be an economic driver for this area. And our question was for who? Right, because we know that when new development comes in, it doesn't always 
come down, those benefits don't always get to the, the folks who are living here, who've, whose blood, sweat, tears are, are in this wood, in the cements, in the streets. And so we didn't really have an answer back then. And as time went by and I was no longer the Neighborhood Association president, passed that on to now Councilmember Valenzuela, I worked with uh, Michelle Parasette. Um, I was interning for her at Public Advocates, and she said, hey, there's something happening you know, in Oak Park. There's a group that is gathered, a community development action team, a CDAT is what they called, and Building Healthy Communities, BHC, under Kim Williams and a few other folks um, supported by the California Endowment got together to say, okay, there's this big thing coming, and we need to make sure that anti-displacement strategies are a part of it. But what are those strategies? And, and it has to be unique for the impact area, which is not just Oak Park, but it's Tahoe Park, it's Lawrence Park, it's South Oak Park, it's Del Paso Heights. Right? There's a lot of folks. We have an urban league right down the street from us. We have Asian resources right down the street from us. And so our role as a coalition of community members who are concerned, like me and Michael, we weren't representing any organization at the time, and community organizations like Organized Sacramento, Sacramento Act, um, Habitat for Humanity came along later and you know we're like okay we really need to make sure that when they're talking about an economic driver when they're talking about bringing in jobs and bringing in opportunities it needs to be for the people who are here it needs to be f for the people who have generations in this community and our, our, our outside communities or impacted communities um, and so when I came to the table to join what wasn't quite SIWD yet, we were still a CDAT, um, we had a lot of concerns. And it wasn't just economic development for who. It was, is there going to be any transit solutions? I mean, we got Stockton Boulevard, right, where the bus line is less than reliable. We got Broadway where people were flying through, kids were getting hit, folks were not in the safest, not in their safest spaces, right? We had folks here in this community who are on Medi-Cal who couldn't go to the hospital, that's three minutes away, right? So community enhancements, economic development for who exactly? And so we formed this group, SIWD, to be able to really answer and address those questions. All right. So I could echo a whole lot of what Tamika's saying, because she and I served on the Oak Park Neighborhood Association board at the same time. And so we both started getting uh, kind of word that this was coming. And what was this? You know, no one could really define it. We didn't know what it was. So uh, at, I was actually working as well for the then council member, Jay Chenier. And so he was really tied in with UC and, and the whole project. We started meeting with them uh, early on because I was kind of looking at it from two ways. I was on the Neighborhood Association, boots on the ground, really trying to explain what this thing is to folks because it was so hard to define. No one really understood it, so everybody was scared. I mean, folks were terrified because you have a lot of low-income folks in the area, and they're thinking this big thing's coming. Everybody's going to want to work here, uh, so folks are going to start buying up all the property, 
uh, rent prices are going to start to go up. And so everyone's thinking, you know, I, I, the, the way it was sold and, and the possibility of what it could do were some, some great things, but on a very high level. For the folks that were on the ground, they were feeling like we're going to get pushed out. So then nothing but gentrification talk all throughout the neighborhood, right? So we had to try to manage that. So we needed answers. We needed to know exactly what this thing is so we could explain it to the common person. And it was hard to really grasp that because it was coming in so many different directions. So it helped that I was in the council member's office because we would have you know, monthly meetings, biweekly meetings with different pieces of uh, Aggie Square, and it helped. Um, we did give a, very early on, we said, okay, bottom line is, UC's reputation in, in Oak Park was terrible, right? It was, they were in the neighborhood, but not of the neighborhood. So they were not embraced. Uh, there were a lot of issues with Medi-Cal. Folks couldn't use their Medi-Cal. You see, it's like, this is my neighborhood. This is where I was born. But yet I can't participate with this system. So there was a lot of, a lot of hesitancy, and they were saying, okay, you see, when they do stuff, they don't talk to the community. They come and they do what they want to do. So we had to try to manage all that. Uh, we didn't want to tell them they were wrong because at the same time, we, we saw the history. But at the same time, everybody we were talking to were saying, hey, we want to do these things to benefit the community. We want to embrace the community. We want to change the reputation. So they were sitting here with open arms. But that trust wasn't there, right? So we had to try to navigate through that. And uh, we gave UC a good 50 ways that they could integrate with the community. We said, hey, there's the Oak Park Little League. Why don't you buy some uniforms and participate and uh, make sure that they're embraced and, and supported well, you see policy, we can't do that. Nope, sorry, because we, we can't you know, do this, this, and that, and cross these different lines. It's a big organization, so I understand they have their restrictions, right? We had to try to respect that. We gave them a whole list of other things, and they, were, they weren't able to take very many of those things. So instead, we said, okay, what else can we do? So then we said, let's try to get a road show going. Let's get UC folks out to the community, to these different neighborhood uh, associations, different uh, groupings of people to explain what this thing is and say what it is. I think that there was a good attempt there, and I think there was a lot of information shared, but what started to happen was this. The trust wasn't there, so when folks heard it, they were like, we don't believe what you're saying. Now, they were doing their part. They were reaching out like they were supposed to, but at the same time, it just wasn't being received. So as time went on, those walls started coming down, and now it's, it's kind of lukewarm. It, it isn't as scary to folks, but still it's a more, are you going to do what you said you're going to do? So, for instance, part of this whole project is going to be geared toward community. It's a whole community space, after-school programs, computer labs, all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's on paper, but folks are waiting to see, okay, when the door is open, is it going to be what you say it is? So we're still trying to work through that piece and still trying to make sure that, uh, you know, in Oak Park, there's a lot of silos, so it's hard to really communicate with every individual, so we're having to do it, you know, piece by piece. So making sure folks are aware, and then make sure that, you know, when the doors open, that they're ready to see what they're ready to see, the expectations set, and then that trust can start to build. Maybe if we could briefly explain what the Community Benefits Partnership Agreement is and how it's supposed to work and what it's meant to do for housing. The Community Benefits um, Partnership Agreement 
was meant to give community a seat at the negotiation table for community benefits. It was meant to reflect the needs, the unique needs of the populations who are impacted by large developments. It is meant to be a living document that makes sure that the community can hold developers as well as the city responsible. And I say that because the Community Benefits Agreement, uh, Partnership Agreement, the one thing that is missing is the commitment and the inclusion of the community in that agreement. It is the city of Sacramento. It is Wexford. It is UC Davis. So the Community Benefits Agreement ordinance or agreement, I, Tamika, I'm riffing off you here, um, is, a, is a written agreement between UC Davis, the Wexford, and the city. It's taking into consideration a lot of the community concerns we heard along the way. And to reflect upon what Travis said earlier um, is that we were in a time of COVID there wasn't direct uh, community um, meetings that we could have, and there was this level of trust, as Michael said, that uh, there was, you know, decades. I've worked in Oak Park for a long time, but there was decades of mistrust, candidly, uh, with UC Davis and the community. And so we felt that it would be very beneficial to put our commitments in writing and to be held accountable for those commitments. Um, this is something that Wexford does um, to some extent in other jurisdictions, but this, I think, is the most robust one. And uh, we can talk about the components of the CBA um, as we're going through the discussion today, but it is a written agreement, and we have regular milestones and regular performance metrics that uh, we are held accountable for. So as it relates to what it does for housing, I think you'll here over the course of the evening what it does for housing. The community benefits agreement um, actually has several components. It has components about youth, components about transportation, community access um, for space, uh, workforce and employment um, considerations, and a lot of uh, components that relate to housing. So uh, the commitment from uh, the city is that um, there would be uh, a minimum of $50 million spent for housing programs in the area around, um, around Aggie Square. So that includes Oak Park and along the Stockton Boulevard corridor. And as part of that, you'll hear uh, later today how we've made a commitment for a number of um, housing stability programs and uh, put money into the community. So you'll hear from Habitat for Humanity, uh, Salvation Army, Step Up Housing and Culture, uh, which is a home buyer program. So you'll hear all of those in the second part of uh, the discussion tonight. But I'm pleased to say that that of the commitment for housing production, new units in the area, um, we have exceeded that um, threshold because collectively between the city, SHRA, and the county, there's been a commitment of $73 million for housing production, primarily for projects along Stockton Boulevard corridor, which will uh, generate close to 1,000 units along the corridor. So we want to be held accountable, and we 
um, and think we're doing a pretty good job. That represents about eight different projects along the corridor, and I can talk with you about the specifics of each of those if you'd like. But in, in general, about $73 million of investment for about 1,000 units of housing production, and then $10 million that's been allocated for housing stability programs. And you'll hear the specifics of each of those programs in the second session. Robert, can I, can I add of one thing? Course, um, course. I wanted to uh, riff off of Tamika's comment of it being a living document, because uh, I think that's also really, really critical when we think about uh, documenting an agreement for addressing community needs. One of the things that, and I, I think I remember is probably in February or March, shortly after we started holding some of our virtual meetings with the community, uh, you know, Wexford doesn't always enter into binding community benefit agreements. We're not opposed to it, but we don't always do it. One of the strategies we've, do, we've done in other markets is we work with the community to create what we call a community benefit strategy. And I just want to describe the difference between the two. Uh, one, what we found with community benefit agreements sometimes is they are negotiated for the needs of a community at a particular point in time, and the interventions are agreed to for that point in time. The challenge we found, though, is if the needs of the community change in three, five, or seven years, we have very little leeway on as to, okay, now we can go back and renegotiate because it's a, it's a negotiated document. I think we've been able to do something, again, this is with a lot of people's efforts, I think we've been able to do something a little bit different here in that we have a robust set of needs that we've identified that we don't think are going to be changing anytime soon, the things that Leslie mentioned. Uh, and, we, and I remember we did say, I, I remember I said, we will paper this the way we need to paper this. Like, whatever is going to work for the community and for the city and for everybody, we'll make sure it gets done. But the thing that we added to, and something we've, we've done in other markets is, um, it's also hard to find that one community organization that speaks for the community writ large. Like, it's, it's very difficult because of just humans. Like, that's just a, a very difficult uh, process. So what we do, and we're, uh, Sumiko and I will be talking about this in the next, you know, three to six months, even more, is we set up a community partnership, uh, community advisory council, for lack of a better term. And that, and there's a fund that's generated, or that there's pools of dollars that are generated that are tied to the ground lease. So that means for the next year, for the, or every year for the next 100, or not 150 years, next 99 years or so, uh, there'll be between 100 to $150,000 that this group comprised of community members and some members of the institutions get to prioritize how those dollars are spent and putting those back into the community. Now, I remember when I first mentioned that to, in a community meeting, somebody raised their hand and they said, $150,000 a year isn't much. It may not be. But I've run nonprofits before, and if I was an executive director of a nonprofit or an organization and you told me, hey, guess what, for the next 65 or 99 years, you're going to start at a baseline of $150,000 a year, every year for the next 99 years, can you go out and do something miraculous with that? And I think that that's, that's where it becomes catalytic, and that's where the living, organ, living uh, document, because as the community's needs change, we now have a mechanism of both funding and a seat at the table for community members to provide funding as the needs change of the community. Because if today is housing and next, in three years, it's, it's youth engagement, and in five years, it's workforce, we want to be able to have resources to address the changing needs of the community. And, and so it is very important that it is a living document. I mean, I think that it's so, we don't want to 
negotiate something, celebrate that it's done, hold meetings like this, and then say, mission accomplished. Mission is not accomplished. We have a lot of work to do. And so the ability to have a community, an ongoing community group. And I believe that agency comp is comprised of two things. Not only a seat at a table and a voice, but resources to actually do something, right? And so if we can continue to put resources into it, I think it'll allow us to be responsive, Aggie Square to be responsive to the needs of the community as they change. Robert, I, I, if you could indulge me for just a second, I want to if recognize brief, someone yes. <laughs> um, in the audience who, um, as I mentioned, all the housing programs, we had um, someone that worked for, used to work for the city. She abandoned us. She moved on. She got this big promotion. Um, but I want to recognize Danielle Foster, who helped us uh, navigate and put a lot of these programs together. So um, she's here with us today. And I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about her contributions as we're moving forward. So thank you. What has the process been like for coming to an agreement? Yes. And what is the status of the CBA? Oh, it's been long. I didn't have gray hair that when was the, That started. was the hard question for the night. That was it. Um, it's been years. This process has literally, literally taken years that I no longer live in Oak Park because we couldn't afford to um, find a single family home for us. Um, it has been collaborative. It has been frustrating. It has been enlightening. It has been, it's still going. <laughs> We're not done. Um, but really, it has been a learning experience because we took this and we went back to the city and said, okay, now you need to do it for the whole city. You need to do this citywide. We need a citywide community benefits agreement that neighborhoods can negotiate and have power and have ownership of and benefit from. So we're still doing this. We're not done. And even though, and I think we even heard from the former council member, he said, you know, organizations like you don't stick around, you all kind of go, we're all still here. We just have gray hair now. Some of us. Some of us Some don't of have us. hair anymore. <laughs> uh, let me just add to say that uh, when it first came out, uh, April 1st, 2022 was when I first saw the benefit agreement. And I was told to review this 80-something page document and give feedback by April 6th. Okay, so I'm not a lawyer, right? So I can't look through this thing. And I'm with a neighborhood association. My job is to connect with the residents and make sure they know what's going on. I couldn't interpret that thing fast enough and, and, and get it in their hands to make them understand it, uh, bring everybody together, and kind of walk through that whole line. So we wrote a letter. It was Oak Park Neighborhood Association, South Oak Park Community Association, Tahoe Park Association. Wrote a joint letter saying, hey, we need time on this. This is too quick. We didn't get what we asked for. So unfortunately, it just went through. Now, you know, the, as the trust was trying to build with UC, and there's still trust trying to build with the city, right? Uh, not every resident trusts the city. And so that was a, a rough start. And I just point that out to say that it's still going on even all these years later. And it still isn't, you know, finalized where it needs to be. So that just lets you know some of the complexities that's been since day one. But we continue to push through. We continue to show it. We continue to have the conversations because it's important. We have to do it. The project's coming. Um, so we have to stay engaged and make sure that we're coordinated as much as possible to all get the outcome that, that we all deserve. 
And Robert, you had asked, like, what's the status of it, or how, what kind of progress have we made? I mean, to, to Michael's point earlier about, you know, we, when the doors open, we could finally see if we're going to fulfill these promises. I think that that is one of the challenges with a project like this, is we negotiate it before we start construction, and then a lot of the promises that are made tend to be applied after the buildings open. But the one area where we have had, I, would, I think we've been doing a really solid job uh, collectively, is on the construction-related jobs. Uh, the num we've exceeded the number of new apprentices. We've exceeded, uh, met or and or exceeded the goals of uh, local hires, regional hires, and those types of things. Uh, and then also a, a metric that's not in our community benefit partnership agreement or our work letters has to do with local spend. And we are continuing to, our, our general contracting team is very diligent about spending as many dollars locally as possible, uh, whether it's the uh, the glass that's all around the building or the uh, the brick that's on the building or, every, or lunches that we get from everywhere in the, in the neighborhood. So there are things that we are doing now, but the, the big wins are going to come when the building opens. But I, I think this, we can't, we can't wait for that. Like we had an opportunity to start make, fulfilling promises and, and meeting the, the commitments with the construction jobs. And because there is a very talented workforce here, uh, labor workforce, union work, workforce here, we were able to, see, to really have a lot of local people working on the job. And we also then can have opportunities when people uh, move into permanent jobs. I'm sorry, real quick, I, I, I just have to say this last piece, and that, that is uh, People Working Together is an organization that uh, trains a lot of apprentices to come in, and they have been able to participate in the project. So that's, that's a good connection. That's, that's positive. So if anybody has any questions, Vanessa will come by with the microphone. I think I saw a gentleman over here. First of all, I want to say thank you all for having this forum. It's really needed. My name's Derek Barrett. I'm Executive Director of People Working Together, the Contractor Advisory Committee. We are solution-based. We understand the complexity of your issues. I've been in the construction industry for over 30 years. No, I know I look young. Um, however, we are preparing minority-owned firms in this area to participate in projects just like yours. What, what we're asking is this. We're asking to sit, to sit with decision makers and to allow us to share our vision and our goals and our mission also. Um, if you go to our website, peopleworkingtogether.org, you'll see we already have resources in place. We're spending our own money to participate. We're just asking for a seat at the table to share with you some of the resources that we have, some of the available union contractors that can participate right now. All we need, again, is a seat at the table and talking to the right person. Yeah, Derek, I'd love to connect with you um, after this because there are many ways. Uh, so on April 11th, the university, both the health campus and the main campus, are hosting a small and diverse business expo that will help connect uh, service providers with university contracting. And I'd also like to introduce you to our facilities design and construction team at UC Davis Health because they have uh, special programs uh, that speed the ability of small and uh, disabled veteran-owned businesses into construction work. So and, and we we'll, should, and, and we'll we should first with your shelter bidding program. I'm actually a vendor and a contractor myself. We see $1.7 billion being built right down the street. 
Citywide, we see $20 billion of development going up. We want to be a part of it, but in order to participate, we have to be a part of the process initially. And this is the time where, and, and God bless the outreaches, but our contractors are looking for work. They're not looking for cookies and juice. God, God bless barbecue. I love it myself. <laughs> but we're looking for work, and we have contractors ready. We need a seat at the table for decision makers to be willing to listen to our proposals and what we have to offer. We have contractors ready right now. Thank you so much for this meeting. Are there any other questions from the audience? We did a great job yeah. then. No well, questions? If there's no more questions. Any more questions? I mean, we're almost out of time, but one more? I'd like to... Um, you, yeah, go ahead yeah, and add. The Community Benefits Partnership Agreement is, uh, as Michael described, a very lengthy document. When you break out all the individual things that the university, the city, and the developer agreed to do, it's like 133 rows on a table. So it's more than we could possibly talk about in one evening. So there are many ways that we're working on to create better connection and to share more information. So I want to point to a couple of things. One is quarterly meetings that we hold, all three of us together as hosts. Um, and we would love to see you at the next community engagement meeting at the end of February at the Oak Park Community Center. Um, I send a monthly newsletter where I try and gather up information about the ways in which we're meeting the obligations of the CBPA. Um, so if you're not already receiving our monthly newsletter, I would love to have your email address and subscribe you to that. Um, I do a monthly walking tour on the exterior along the fence line of the project, and we get into a lot of uh, the workforce development programs that we're already beginning to pilot, um, the ways in which the general contractor is investing in local um, subcontractors and creating uh, employment opportunity for new apprentices in the building trades. So there's a lot more time to get into those kinds of questions with all of you. So um, I just I want to invite you to find ways to connect. I'll happily take you to a cup of coffee across the street um, if you have specific questions that we haven't been able to touch on tonight. It's There's a lot there, um, but I think... Um, you know, the, the opportunity and the willingness to engage is for sure here. Hey, Robert. Can I address something Vanessa said at the top? Is in, a, in a minute? Within a minute or in a minute? Within, like, a, within inside, inside a minute? Yes. Uh, go for it. <laughs> Vanessa said the mayor had mentioned that this could be a model for other cities. Other cities already have community benefits agreements, but you know the most successful ones are ones that are negotiated with communities ones where the community is at the table, beginning, middle, and end, on paper, black and white. Those are the most successful. And we have studied all the community benefits agreements, so you come talk to me if you want some more info. All right, well, let's give a round of applause to all our speakers. Thank you very much. And we will be back with part two in just a few minutes, everybody. When we come back, new speakers take the stage for part two of the live Suds and Solutions event that happened in January of this year from Solving Sacramento.
Now I'll ask everyone to introduce themselves for this part two. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Leah Miller. I'm the CEO of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Sacramento. I'm Sierra Edwards. I am the director of NorCal Operations for Step Up on Second. Hello, I am Christina Kitchen, and I am the program administrator for the Salvation Army here in Sacramento. Hello, everyone. My name is Ashley Garner. I'm the program director at Culture. (laughs) How did your group get involved in this community benefits agreement, and what are you using the funding for? I guess we'll start down here. Okay, let me sum this up as fast as I can. Um, <laughs> Unseen Heroes is our sister company, and we've been in the ind- we've been in the neighborhood for this year, going on ten years. So, seeing the gentrification firsthand in Oak Park on what was going on, um, the CEO Roshan took the time during COVID to see what could we do to be more impactful in the community, right? So, he decided to start a nonprofit CDC to provide programs for us to actually build in our community. Um, he worked with. Um, Danielle, I think she left, but they worked on the agreement. Oh, she's here? Oh, well, she's not sitting down. She's just getting more barbecue. <laughs> but we worked with Danielle, got the funding approved, and then he reached out to me and was like, Ashley, I need help designing this program out. And so I designed it out, created curriculum, and we have the Culture Keeper program. But how does it relate to the so, you said to the CBPA? CBA. CBA. So, we providing um, 20, was 25 people in the community with 17500 in down payment assistance to buy a home in the community. But the money came from? Oh, from the Aggie Square the, the agreement, the community benefits agreement. Yes, that's where the funding came from. Sorry. So, I believe that um, our office, last officer, um, Captain Larry Carmichael, had sat down with Danielle and, with the city um, to discuss how the Salvation Army could partner with the city to um, help out with the Oak Park Aggie Square um, commitment. Uh, and so, after that discussion with Danielle, um, it just made sense because the Salvation Army for many, many years has been helping with rental assistance, PG&E, SMUD, all of that. Uh, so it made sense for us to become a partner in this agreement. So Step Up on Second is one of the number one nonprofits in the Sacramento area for housing and displacement. And Danielle Foster reached out to us. And we put together an agreement for helping everyone in the Oak Park Aggie Square area with rental assistance, utility assistance, and that's how we got involved. Um, Habitat for Humanity has been serving the Sacramento and Yolo uh, counties for 38 years. And in that 38 years, we've built the majority of our homes here in the Oak Park community, over 100 homes in the last uh, 38 years. And so we've been in the community for a while. And seven years ago, we started our our repair efforts because at Habitat for Humanity, we believe it's important not just to build the affordable home ownership units that we need in our community, but also to preserve the existing affordable units that we have in our community to help keep seniors, veterans, families in their already affordable home and avoid displacement. Um, we, we launched that here specifically in the Oak Park neighborhood because we'd already had such, um, such a presence in the neighborhood with the homes that we'd built uh, through our history. And that started in 2017. And since then, we've repaired over 100 homes here in the Oak Park community. And so when it came, uh, the opportunity came about to be able to participate 
in the Community Benefits Agreement receive funding to further that work, um, we were able to take the funding that we have from the city and not just use that funding, but use it as an initial investment to catalyze more funding um, to further the work that we do here in this community. And so Rock the Block was started, started out to be um, something that we did just for five years to see the impact of, of home repairs over time of that five-year period. But because of the funding that we were able to get um, through the benefits agreement, we were able to further that and make a 10-year commitment through Rock the Block. If you haven't been a part of it, you got to come out May 3rd and 4th. 500 volunteers come out to help repair about 20 homes over 36 hours. And, um, you know, at, at, at Habitat, we oftentimes say it takes a community to build a community, but it also takes a community to repair a community. Um, and the funding that we were able to secure through the community benefits agreement uh, helps to Further work through Rock the Block um, with additional $500,000 to do repairs on top of that throughout the entire year in the Oak Park neighborhood. Um, and since we received the initial funding from the Community Benefits Agreement, um, we've been able to complete 23 home repairs just in this fiscal year with that funding and um, couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity to really take that funding and make an investment in the community and to build upon it to bring other dollars into the community. Um, and every year, just through Rock the Block alone, um, not including the repairs we do throughout the year, is about a $400,000 investment that Habitat for Humanity helps to bring others together to, to catalyze an even greater impact in the community over time. What results have you seen from the funding that you received and uh, how might community members get connected with your organizations in order to also be aided by the work that you do? Well, like I was saying, with the funding's allowed us to be able to do 23 repairs specifically in the zip codes, um, the four zip codes that the, the funding is, 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 is designated towards. Um, but there's no shortage of an opportunity to get involved in what Habitat does. Um, you know, we are doing repairs. We have Rock the Block. We're also building 10 homes in the neighborhood currently um, in partnership with the city. Um, you probably have driven by three of the homes or four of the homes that are currently under construction. Those will be done in June and the remaining seven by the end of the year. And so this is a really exciting year. Um, and Habitat for Humanity is an organization, but what we do isn't possible without people in the community like each and every single one of you coming together, rolling up your sleeves, helping to make the work possible and, and, and furthering the investment um, that, that Habitat for Humanity helps to bring in. Um, we wouldn't be who we are and able to do what we do if it weren't for the people in the community. So if you're interested in getting involved to helping to uh, to complete repairs, work side by side with your neighbors, help build homes to create more affordable home ownership opportunities in our community, definitely come see me uh, or Kelly over here. She's with Habitat. We've got applications over there at the front um, before you leave for our Rock the Block home repairs effort. Um, applications are due tomorrow. It's not a tough application. Uh, only you need to have a few pieces of, of information, but um, there's a focus map in there. You can see where we're doing repairs actively for Rock the Block, which occurs on May 3rd and 4th. Um, and get your application tomorrow doesn't require a whole lot to do so. Your um, proof of home ownership, so your mortgage statement, your proof of home um, your insurance, your most recent tax returns, and your driver's license. And then just tell us what you need. You need roof repairs. You need dry. You need uh, painting. You need siding. You need landscaping. You need fencing. Those are just some of the things that we can do with the funding that we have. Um, all focused on helping the people stay in their already affordable homes and preserve those units, specifically here in the Oak Park community. So the things that we're doing are helping the families and individuals in the area of the Aggie Square area to help with their rental assistance and utility assistance. In the last 11 months, we have spent $120,000 making sure that 35 families were not being displaced. 11 of um, additional families 
continued to have their utilities stay on and continued to be getting the services that they needed. Um, it's all just been an amazing thing that's happened so fast for us to spend that amount of money so fast. I didn't expect for it to happen. And we're extremely thankful for the opportunity to continue to receive those funds and continue to help the families that need it because it doesn't stop. The phone calls don't stop. The requests don't stop. And you can see the hardships. It's generational within the community that there's families that have been here for years and years and they need the additional support. So I like to echo a little bit of what Sierra said because we also do uh, a lot of what the Step Up does in regards to um, the funding that's available. So we do the um, back owed mortgage, rent, utilities, up to three months cumulative period. period. Um, and then also um, one-time bill assistance with like medical bills, uh, car repairs, things are, that uh, a family might need to stay housed, stay stable in their housing. Um, and as of 11, eight months that we have been doing the anti-displacement, we were a little bit behind the cue ball and getting started. Um, we have assisted 148 individuals or families um, remain housed in Oak Park and Aggie Square, and we've spent close to $215,000 to keep these individuals housed. Awesome. Everybody's doing every amazing things. <laughs> and it sounds like Danielle's the denominator <laughs> in <She> this. Is. <laughs> Um, with culture right now, we have had our graduates. They actually graduated December 15th. We got a couple of them here. Um, and we graduated here. So it was great to be in the community. We held our eight-week courses around the corner at All City Homes. So everything was local within the O Park community. We have six people approved and three people ready to go now. Um, in that space, we were able to connect and create partnerships with banks. And so negotiating lower interest rates. Right now, I did a partnership with River City. And when I checked, they're getting the government curb yield rate, which is a 3.86 the last time I checked. And it actually went down. And they were able to push their mortgages out to 40 years to make it more affordable. Just like I taught my students, 10 years ago, there were houses you could see for 45000 Those houses now are $400,000. So where is the affordability? There's just no way that we can get into these houses. And then we're bringing in these billion-dollar developments. How is that going to be conducive to the community that's already here? So in that space, I taught, that I taught them community civic engagement. Um, they're actively being a part of the community. They're showing up and supporting one another. And so... Right now, we have, like I said, three people ready to go. Six people are approved, and they keep coming at me fast, y'all. <laughs> They're getting approved every month. Someone's like, Ashley, I'm almost ready. Ashley, I'll be ready next month. So just moving on, we plan on running the program again um, this year, working with the bank, and it'll be a little more less on the stipulations when it comes to where they can buy, but just working in a lot of blighted communities that need to be served. Do you see Sacramento's community benefits agreement as something that could work in other cities? As a nonprofit organization, I think that what has been really wonderful about this for, for us as Habitat and for our other partners sitting up here is that it's funds that are coming in to actually fuel our mission. Um, nonprofits work really hard to try and bring funds to the mission, to fuel the mission, to serve the people that need the services in our communities. Um, so from our standpoint, I'm sure all of us are like, yes, bring more money. <laughs> 
to nonprofits to help make the work possible. Um, and nonprofits are the ones on the ground doing the work in all of our communities who are connecting with the residents and the community partners um, and have a better understanding of the needs of the communities. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful for the incredible community partners here in the Oak Park community who have made it possible to do the work that we do here. Um, and while our, our city and, and developers come into communities, they aren't necessarily on the ground or have the pulse of what's happening and understand the needs. And it's those community partners and nonprofits that are able to work together to be that voice and ensure that seat at the table. And I, I would love to see more opportunities like this come about for nonprofits to be able to take dollars and put them into actual work where actual needs are and see outcomes. I'll just piggyback on what you said. I completely agree with that. Um, I do think that the economic increase in everything isn't just here. It's everywhere. And so if there are nonprofits in other areas, in other big cities that can do the same thing that we're doing with the same type of funding, then absolutely. I think that um, the more people out there that get to know the information that we have or more nonprofits are providing those services, the better people will understand and help. Because most people don't know the services that they can get unless they're involved in the community. So the, communi the more community gets involved, the more money is available. So absolutely, I agree with what you said. I also agree, piggyback off of what they're saying. And I, and I, I honestly believe that this may not be a solution to preventing homelessness, but it's a starting point. Absolutely. Let's keep these people housed in the community that they lived and they thrived and they grew in. I think I'm going to piggyback, too, off of what Tamika said earlier. There are other cities that are already doing this, right? So, yes, we have these conversations, but when is the conversation going to turn into action? Um, partnerships are extremely important. Uh, due to the city's partnership, we had financial coaches. The whole point of the program that I created was to provide, more so restore hope and provide a pathway to ownership, right? We don't have a foundation of that in this community. Like there's people in my, my classes who've lived here for 30 years who haven't owned a piece of anything in this community but serve it every day. So working with the FEC, thank you Amy and Leslie, um, they educated my students on the financials that we need, right? Making sure that they're negotiating their debts down, making sure that they're taking this money and putting it in the right places. We couldn't have done that without the FEC. So partnerships are very important. We should take this model and look at other models, like again, Tamika said, and see what we could do to make it better here at home. Can I just say one more thing? I just want to give a shout out to Tamiko and, and to Michael yes. for all of the work that you did because whether this could work in another city depends upon passionate, tenacious people who aren't afraid to step up and use their voice to make it happen. And thank you for being who you are and doing all that you've done to, to make this happen for this community and may it be a model for the future. What are some of the lessons that your organizations have learned from this uh, agreement and the work that you've been doing? related to the Aggie Square development? What are some of the lessons? I think one of the things that we were talking about just in the office the other day is um, in order to get the word out in the community, we have, like I said, a lot of really great community partners that are helping to make, it sh make sure that we get the opportunities, that the programs that we provide out to the community, they are the, the ones that are living and breathing in the community on a daily basis, and so that's, that's incredibly important. But one of the things we, I think we struggle with with Habitat is the digital divide um, with the people in the community and how to best address that um, to ensure that, you know, especially we help a lot of seniors um, here in the community who've lived here for generations and have 
issues with their home that if they aren't addressed, the leaking hole in their roof, as the, you know, the roof here has a leak in it. You know, there's people who live in their homes right now who, in this community, who, if that isn't addressed, will stand to possibly lose their home. Seniors don't always have the greatest access to social media and email and news blasts. But how can we better reach them? And I'm sure all, all of our organizations could benefit from maybe thinking a little bit more about how when we launch something like this, how can we as a collaborative um, do a better job in addressing the digital divide to ensure we truly are reaching those who need it most? I agree with you completely on that. And we noticed that when we first uh, launched it, it was a big struggle. Seniors, elderly people not having that internet connection or able to scan documents, et cetera. And so we had to think outside the box. Our case manager goes to their home. She sits with them. She'll take pictures of their documents. She'll do what she needs to do to make sure that it's being taken care of. And then she'll touch back in with them to reassure that that is being processed, their payment for their rents being processed, their utilities are being processed, because it's not their fault that they don't have money to have internet or they don't have money to have a computer or they don't have the money to fix their roof or to pay their rent. And so we'll meet them where they're at. If they're not comfortable inviting us into their home, Let's meet at the closest coffee shop or whatever to make them feel comfortable. And so we just had to, I'm, I'm not a black and white person. I'm very gray. And so let's meet them where they're at. Let's, let's go into the community. And the community has embraced us so much to the point where she's at the community center helping seniors on the computers and doing different things. You just have to be part of the community to be accepted into the community. And our case manager has done a fantastic job doing that. Uh, one of the lessons that we learned is that um, it takes more than just us as the Salvation Army to provide this, uh, these services to individuals. We struggled. Like I said, we, we've only been doing this for eight months because we struggled to get clients in the door. Um, and had we not collaborated with Step Up, that gave us a, a wealth of clients to start out with um, that now have went back to the community and put that word out there that Salvation Army is doing this also. Um, it has been very helpful for us that now we've gotten to reach the, all these clients that we have reached. Also that we learned um, that when we first started, we were only seeing clients in um, North Highlands. Uh, a lot of people weren't wanting to or didn't have means to leave the Oak Park area. So we now have a case manager that actually has an office stationed here in Oak Park three days a week out of the five days a week that we're doing it. And so they can meet her here in Oak Park. And so it's, it's definitely been better. Awesome. I would say the lessons learned. Um, there's not enough of us's to support them. Um, we had our application open for two weeks and we got 365 people that applied and I can only help 25 people, right? And every day I get emails, people are reaching out to me on social media, how can I receive help? How can I receive, they just want the education. They're very grateful on just how do I do it? You don't have to give me money, how do I do it? So. I think opening up a, a better pathway for them, thinking outside the box, providing the information for them, and not just superficial information, just throwing it at them, but giving them real life scenarios, putting it in their world so they understand the importance of it. And now it's time for our audience engagement section. If anyone has any questions they'd like to ask, please raise your hands and Vanessa will come by with the microphone. And it looks like we do have one question from the audience. 
Good evening tonight. Uh, thank you, panel, um, for sharing all those uh, successes. And it causes me, when I think about the first panel, with the successes on the workforce side and things of that nature, um, how much more we could have accomplished if we had those active voices from the community, right, at the table. And so since this is a living document, the question is, since this is a strategy, and thank you, Travis, for explaining the difference between those two, that suggests that this is moving. And so it, since it's moving, how now can we participate? Because to your point, you know, with people working together, doing what they do on the workforce side, they have an extensive reservoir of individuals that want help, gainful employment. The building trades, we can't create enough opportunities, right? Because there's no training dollars that have been assigned specifically to do those things. And so the question is, how can we participate now, right, since this is a living document and you've heard some of these concerns tonight? I know with culture, um, the participation has been phenomenal, um, even bringing in real estate agents. Um, we talked about estate planning because it's not just giving people money to buy houses. How can we sustain those houses? So bringing in the right people for them to actually speak with and trust. Um, a lot of the issue that I see just in my space is there are people talking at them and they don't understand. Um, I've been in housing for 11 years now. I've been an agent for five years. And I pulled people through the process and noticed that they still don't understand, right? A lot of people um, are not at the table, as you said, um, speaking from a state level. Nobody's at the table. Nobody makes those decisions. So the people who are making decisions who have never set foot in the community are causing to just put Band-Aids on wounds that need to be addressed, so with you, all I could say is, you know, making sure that we have those voices at the table so we're not putting band-aids and causing bigger issues. I think one of the other ways that we can continue to be involved is taking the funds that we have now, collecting data on it and showing impact and seeing how those investments were so valuable and how we're able to catalyze further investments into the neighborhood to further more money coming into the neighborhood ultimately because it's about sustainability. Uh, one shot in the arm isn't going to do what we ultimately want it to do in this community or in any community where you have a benefits agreement. You want to see that impact over time through investments and how those investments have been able to catalyze further investments from others to, to further the work. Okay, that's all the time we have. A round of applause for our speakers. This is part two. And thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Solving Sacramento. Thank you, especially to Vanessa Richardson. Yeah. And, and the, brick, the Brick House for hosting. That does it for this special edition of Housing in the Capital from Solving Sacramento. Big thanks to the Sacramento Observer's Robert Hansen for hosting the event on the night. Vanessa Richardson, our events producer and audience engagement specialist. Kat Graziosi is Solving Sacramento's project editor. Sina Christian, our project manager. Lillian Francis composed the theme music you're listening to right now. My name is Nick Bruner. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to stay subscribed for more from Solving Sacramento. And a reminder that everything you find is supported in part through listener and reader contributions. I hope that you'll consider a monthly contribution 
to Solving Sacramento for all that you get. Think of a monthly amount you otherwise wouldn't miss. Make that contribution now at givebutter.com slash solvingsacramento or click or tap that donate button at solvingsacramento.org. And thank you so much in advance. Next time, this podcast broadens in scope. We'll still be looking at housing and the myriad problems to address here in Sacramento and around this region. You'll also start hearing more about how equity touches life in local transportation, our food system, the workplace, higher education, and environmental justice. The first episodes should start hitting in just a couple weeks, so stay subscribed. We'll see you then. This podcast is supported by funding from the Solutions Journalism Network.